So what are virtues and why do we need them? We can offer a very quick and easy answer to that question by simply going to the first three articles of question uh, 55 of the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae. Uh, Article 1 says that a virtue most generally conceived is a perfection of a power. And then he goes and specifies what that means. In the case of human powers, it's an operative habit, and not just any type of operative habit, a good operative habit that perfects that power for good action, that disposes us, as we learn later on in that, those questions, uh, to do the good act with ease, promptness, and joy. So why do we need them? He also already in Article 1 says, well, because the powers are general. They're ordered to uh, a, a general level uh, of action, uh, but action is specific. So we need something that will dispose us not to act in general, no one acts in general, but to act here and now, hic et nunc, something that disposes us to act well, to do the good act concretely. And since angels and God are per in perfect act, so their uh, virtus is activity itself, uh, but that's not the case for us. Other powers are determined to their action but these powers of the soul, intellect, will, the passions, especially as they're subdivided into the irascible and concupiscible appetites, those powers are not specified to their concrete actions. So something in between the power and the act has to intervene to dispose us to act well. So a virtue in its fullest uh, definition would be, uh, or at least uh, generic definition would be a good habit, uh, operative habit of the soul that makes the agent good and his action good. All right, so I've answered the two questions of the title and I can end. The problem is there are many obstacles against us understanding the terms of that definition. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that it's almost a principle, uh, give a good quality a name and it will soon become the name of its opposite. Uh, or as Wittgenstein says, uh, it, there on occasionally we have to send our terms to the cleaners. Uh, and if that's true in general, it's especially true of moral terms, such, to such an extent that virtue terms like prudence mean in popular parlance almost exactly the opposite. Be prudent, or it wouldn't be prudent. Uh, that is not what phronesis, prudentia, which is the disposition to see what I should do here and now, even if that puts my life in danger. Uh, that's the extreme opposite of prudence in spoken parlance. And it's also true of habit. So Father Pinkers wrote a whole essay on virtue is not a habit. And what did he mean? It's not habit in the way in which that term is used. So the rest of my uh, talk is actually going to look at, well, uh, what do we mean by habitus? And especially, what do we mean by the good here in, in, uh, in moral terms? And before we get into 
sending these notions to the cleaners, we also have to address a, a certain conception of the whole notion of virtue ethics. And I want to draw on uh, uh, Jerome Schneewin, who for a long time taught at Yale, I think he's emeritus now at John Hopkins, um, but he, uh, he articulates a view of virtue ethics that is very influential, and I think we have to also be aware that it's an obstacle towards us understanding the definitions that, uh, that Aquinas offers of virtue. Uh, so it's on page two, the second full quotation, and it's from an essay that you can find on the internet in PDF form called The Misfortunes of Virtue. And this is Schneewin. At the risk of oversimplification, I will lay out a set of differences between virtue-centered views on the one hand and what I shall call act-centered or rule-centered views on the other. It seems to be commonly agreed that virtue-centered view, that a virtue-centered view sees character as the core of morality and supposes that the central moral question is not what ought I to do, but what sort of person, person am I to be? Second, on the epistemological side, the virtue theorist holds that the perceptions of the virtuous person are the original and central source of knowledge of how much good to pursue, for whom, in what circumstances, and how vigorously. We may be able to uh, formulate rules which crudely map the decisions of the virtuous person, but no set of rules will exactly capture them or anticipate every decision in a new situation. Nor does the virtuous person have any algorithm. We may educate children into virtue by teaching them some simple rules, but mature moral agents do not need them. By contrast, to virtue-centered views of morality, act-centered views see the point of morality as directing what we do. We may acquire habits of acting in the right ways, and these habits may be called virtues, but their value lies in their ensuring, ensuring correct action. And if we are praised as virtuous, the praise derives from the value placed on what we do. The act-centered theorist then explains how we can know what to do by appealing to rules, laws, or principles which spell out or give us a method for finding out what is right or permitted or obligatory. The rules or principles can be known and applied by someone who has no desire or concern for acting on them. Such a person could mimic the actions of someone who had uh, who, who had believe, believe behaving correctly without valuing such behavior for itself. I think it should be had the virtues, behaving correctly without valuing such behavior for itself. There is thus no counterpart uh, in act-centered theory for the epistemological privilege of the virtuous agent in a virtue-centered view. So what is Schneewin saying? He's contrasting virtue ethics that's concerned about my character and sees character the source of my moral knowledge and judgment with action, or another word for his idea of action, rule-based ethics that is concerned about what we do, how we behave, 
and we can know what we should do by what's the rule. Um, this is this way of portraying virtue ethics is very influential, and those who think that you don't have to have the virtue in order to know what to do uh, are very well um, instantiated by um, Stuart Hampshire. Now. I get this from Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch celebrates Stuart Hampshire because she feels that he perfectly embodies uh, the, the most common errors in modern philosophy. It's a, it's a dubious honor. Um, but this is how uh, she quotes him uh, from his work, Thought and Action. And what, the reason I want to quote him is because it's important for us to understand another obstacle to the you know, so what aspect of virtue ethics. And the reason someone could have a so what attitude towards virtue ethics is because of his presupposition with regard to how reasoning, moral reasoning, functions. And Hampshire portrays this beautifully. Quotation from Stuart Hampshire. It is essential to thought that it takes its own forms and follows its own paths without my intervention. That is, without the intervention of my will. Now, in case we missed it here, Stuart Hampshire goes on to say, and I quote it, it's the last quote from him there, I identify myself with my will. So uh, in practical, for Hampshire, thought, even thought about practical matters is, quote, self-directing. And it begins on its own path and is grounded by its universal rules. So it doesn't matter whether I'm an ax murderer or whether I'm disposed to drink too much. Practical reason is reasoning from principles to necessary conclusions. Essentially, from the Aristotelian perspective, this way of looking at practical reason is reduces practical reason to a form of speculative reason. You know, two plus two equals four. Whether, for various accounting reasons, that makes me angry or sad, I still can't make myself not see that two plus two equals four. No matter how I feel about it, no matter what my virtues or vices are, I will always, if you go to the whiteboard and put two dots and then two more dots and add up the dots, I, I cannot not see the truth of two plus two equals four, no matter what my character is. Hampshire is arguing that even reasoning about moral matters is like that. So he identifies himself with his will. That means his idea is what uh, other philosophers will t uh, describe as the homunculus fallacy. The little man inside us is our will. And the will is before the little TV monitor of the computer, and that's practical reasoning. So if you, and that's basically Schneewin's view. I mean, it's a, I've, uh, Hampshire gives the, the lunatic, simple expression of it. But what Schneewin is saying is, you don't need the virtues to know what's right or wrong. You've got the moral blueprint, and what matters now is whether you're going to do it or not. Okay, now the problem with that uh, we'll come back to, uh, but the question that it poses is, is practical judgment really reducible to speculative judgment? Or is practical judgment dependent upon my character? As uh, uh, Father Brent already, uh, uh, Brett already um, quoted, Aristotle say, the end appears to a man according to who he is. 
And of course, if you spell it out, who one is is according to his loves. So what we love will shape how we view the ends of our action. And I want to lead us to see by using some cases, if we look at our outline where we are, so I've already mentioned the linguistic obstacle that habitus ends up being the opposite of what it is, so too are many of the virtue terms. Um, and we've looked at Snaywin's objection, we've looked at Stuart Hampshire's caricature of it. Now, um, let's put another aspect of Snaywin's account into question. That is the contrast between a morality of rules, a morality of action, and virtue. For Aquinas, the virtues, we are able to identify them because of their actions. It is an action-based theory. For Aquinas, the reason these virtues are important is because how they dispose us to act. The good moral deed, the act that is done with knowledge and love, with intellect and will, that engages our liberum arbitrium, our free judgment, that is the concern for Aquinas, the principal concern, and activity. But it's an activity that is embedded in a way of life. Uh, this can lead us, and I've given the quotations, but I, I, you can read it at your leisure. It uh, suggests the importance of Elizabeth Anscombe's 1958 essay on modern moral philosophy, where she looks at if we're going to have a, uh, a coherent notion of, the mor- of moral obligation, we need to recover a notion of human flourishing, the activity that the virtues are or dispose us towards engaging in, actions that are ordered toward flourishing, actions that are ordered towards happiness, actions that are ordered towards uh, the goal of human life. So if we were to map it out, if you look at the structure of the Summa, the, the Secundapars, starts with the question of happiness, human flourishing, human action in relation to it, that is, those actions that are ad finem. Aquinas very, very rarely uses the word, the Latin word for means. And what Latin word for means means for Aquinas is the midpoint between two ends, two extremes. It doesn't mean means as we use it in English. And I think there's a very good reason why Aquinas doesn't use the word means, because it suggests that it's, it's an analogy drawn from local motion. I'm at point A, I want to get to this end, point B, and I get there through these means. So it's like stepping stones on a path. So that being at the midpoint between San Francisco and Los Angeles is not being in Los Angeles. But the act already participates in the end for Aquinas. So that the act is ad finum. It's something different. So action is embedded uh, in the very heart of his virtue ethic. So you have the, the goal of human life, happiness. You have actions that are ordered to happiness. Then these things that influence our actions, the passions, the whole section on the passions, and then the, the treatise on the virtues. But in order to understand how virtue functions, what comes next? Treatise on law and grace. So, judging from the content of Schneewin's account, Aquinas' moral vision doesn't compute. 
it would be it would have to be a both and it would have to be a virtue ethics that is an action centered ethics that is a rule based ethics now to understand why that's not incoherent we will go towards a traditional way of explaining it which is by analogy with techne uh, but before we get to that part which is number 4 i think we can most helpfully get to understand the key here about the good I mentioned. We want to rehabilitate habitus. We also want to rehabilitate moral good by looking at a few examples. And uh, forgive me if the first one is a, a regional example. Um, the, written in uh, 1937 uh, at his, the dining room table of his uh, family, his parents' home in Salinas, uh, John Steinbeck was fascinated with moral, stages of moral development and the ways in which we grow to see and act contrary to uh, our own original formation. And it's a collection of short stories that was later published as The Red Pony. Now, you might be forgiven uh, for thinking that The Red Pony is talking about a horse, but really The Red Pony in this book is Jody. He's a boy, typical boy, cruel, blood on his hands. He's The Red Pony. And through most of the short stories, he is selfish, he is self-seeking, he has a disordered love for pleasure and leisure, and his selfishness leads to the death of a valued horse and many other things. But at the end, and this is the whole point of Steinbeck's story, at the end when his grandfather, who is the father of his mother, who is lamenting that a certain world that he has known no longer exists and he he's, doesn't seem to be useless and he's not valued by his son-in-law, Jody, who has been selfish, but beginning to grow in insight through his experiences, decides to make a lemonade for his grandfather. Now, at first, the mother thinks that he's asking to get the lemons and the squeezer just so that he can uh, finagle a, a glass of lemonade for himself. And when she realizes that it's not that, she goes from kind of teasing her son to seeing that an important moment has arrived. And the, the, the book, the story, ends uh, with that realization and the mother helps her son prepare this glass of lemonade. Now, you might be asking, well, what does this have to do with Aquinas? But how to understand Jody's action? What is the goal of his action? Why does he make the lemonade? What is his concern? If you were to ask Jody, why are you making the lemonade? What would his response be? I can tell you one thing that it would not be. It's because it's a basic good. <laughs> because there's a rule that tells me I should. Jody makes the lemonade for his grandfather. And the amazing thing is he's made the judgment that at this time, that's the good thing for him to do. That's the one thing he can do to do something for his grandfather. Now, you know, this Jody's not a ethics professor, he's not a moral philosopher, 
But if we're going to take seriously the way of analyzing how we speak and how we act that is in the Aristotelian tradition and also in ordinary language philosophy, uh, Jody's insight is not an isolated insight. And now I want to jump to uh, the experience of a longtime professor of ethics at Wellesleyan, uh, Philip Haley. Now, Philip Haley says, at the beginning of the book that I quote there, that he had done a study of cruelty and evil, and he fell into a depression interviewing all these people and writing this study. So he decided he wanted to do something about people who do good things. And he started analyzing for the, the folks that had um, uh, set up uh, these places to help shipwreck victims on the New England coast, and they were putting their lives in danger. He started to study all these cases. Then he discovered the Huguenot village in the south of France uh, that had saved, and the statistics vary because they didn't keep accounts, between 2,000 and 5,000 Jews, most of whom were children. And he was fascinated. So he went there when uh, most of these people were in their 60s, uh, most of the men in the village were gone. One of the few who was there was the pastor, the Huguenot pastor, and, but there are others who arranged most of this and successfully hid the Jews and, and snuck them across uh, into, uh, into Switzerland. Uh, was, uh, the pastor was there, the pastor's wife, and a lot of the, the women whose men were off either in um, prisoner of war camps or, or fighting. And... So he wanted to understand why they did what they did. And he came with all of these uh, Kantian ideas of obligation and goods. And uh, her reaction is, is precious. So uh, well, now we go to page two here. And it's very similar to Jody, or at least what I imagine Jody would respond if you asked him why he made the lemonade. It was for Grandpa. All right, so what happens? Um, we're at uh, the middle of the page of page two. Uh, so he's talking to the, village, to the pastor's wife. Uh, the first observation he makes is, Mag this is uh, Haley talking, Magda uh, Trokme's stories were about feeding and educating the children and about putting them into equipes or teams and spiriting them across the great rugged mountains and through the police and military units that patrolled the mountains between Le Chambon and Geneva, Switzerland. The children, not the Chambonnet, dominated her stories. There was not an ounce of self-vaunting or hatred in her stories, only adventures. They were not stories of the hate-filled death in life I had known in Chicago. They were facts about lives saved, about human solidarity being tested and proved. So he starts trying to get her to explain why she does what she did, and she uses different philosophical notions, and suddenly she blurts out. She interrupted herself and turned to me in, quiet, in a quiet and sympathetic voice. I'm sorry, but you see, you have not understood what I have been saying. We have been talking, and again, there's something missing, uh, about saving the children. We did not do what we did for goodness sake. We did it for the children. Now, again, like Jody, you know, why did he make the lemonade? For his grandfather. Why were the people of uh, Le Chambon saving the Jews? It was for the children. Um, Neither extreme in modern 
ethics or in uh, versions of it among Catholic ethicists, unfortunately, can say that philosophically, right? The proportionalists want to, they believe in basic goods just like the new natural lawyers do. The question is whether basic goods are commensurable or not. Can I make a calculus of uh, basic goods and sacrifice some over others? Or are they incommensurable? And I always have to act in order for the moral purity of my will according to a basic good. And what does uh, the pastor's wife say? Um, We did not do it for goodness sake. We did it for the children. Don't use words like good with me. They are foolish words. So if we're going to take seriously the virtue ethics, if we want to call it that, of Thomas Aquinas, we have to take seriously what Ms. Anscombe argues for in her essay. We have to recover a notion of what it means to be human, of human flourishing, and that things have natures. The people of the Chambon recognized the truth before them. These are children. We need to save them. Their judgments presuppose their ability to make qualitative judgments. And qualitative judgments about concrete cases, what I should do here and now when I'm confronted by a child in need. And I don't, you know, they can all go to college, they all go to university, they can all become ethicists, but they will never, those good people of Le Chambon, are never going to say it was so that I realized I couldn't act according uh, against a basic good. That's not going to be the conclusion of their reasoning. It's about recognizing what is before them. It's a qualitative judgment. It's not a quantitative judgment. And it's not a... Uh, it, it, the, people disappear in modern philosophy and are replaced by a certain notion of goods. So what I'm arguing for is if we really are taking seriously the ethics of Aquinas, virtue ethics in Aquinas' view, you cannot avoid recovering a full notion of what it means to be human and of human flourishing. It was recognized years ago, and McIntyre draws on this without citing him, uh, Wallace's book on virtues and vices, that the easiest and quickest way to get beyond the divide between uh, fact-value is that we cannot know factually what something is without knowing what a good example of it is. If I see something coming over the horizon on three legs, in order to identify that as a dog, I have to have some notion of what a healthy dog, a good dog is. Otherwise, I'm going to think dogs have three legs. So already to know what a dog is presupposes a judgment about what a good dog is. So uh, fact presupposes a judgment of value. And it would be mighty strange if we were the only animal species in creation about which we can't make that judgment. We make judgments about horses, dogs, uh, dolphins. Uh, The reason McIntyre spent all that time studying dolphins is because we can and do regularly make and identify what constitutes dolphin thriving. Uh, Are humans the only one that we can't identify what constitutes at least generally human thriving? So 
we can't uh, think we're recovering a Thomistic understanding of virtue without recovering a Thomistic understanding of what it means to be flourishing as a human being, human happiness. And the actions that, again, are not means in the modern sense, not means like walking on stepping stones to an end, but the act itself participates in the end. In the end, the, uh, the, the Chinese insight that the, that the way is the end is true. The way, the actions on the way participate in the end, or they are not a true understanding of action and our participation in divine action. All right, so that's uh, the examples that can lead us uh, and you can do something, uh, there's the negative example. So I've given you Jody uh, Tiflin's Lemonade. I've given you The Village of Le Chambon. But how to understand Jim's abandonment uh, in the incredible uh, novel uh, Lord Jim of the 800 pilgrims of a very, uh, I forget how he describes it, 800 pilgrims of a severe religion on pilgrimage. How uh, Jim a man of cultured education, the first mate of the ship, how he joins the scoundrels, that is, all the European officers who abandon the ship, and the only people on the ship now are the 800 passengers and the native crew, the people who are doing the hard work of shoveling the coal and all that. They're all abandoned. Why? Because this early steamer, uh, the engines have, have failed and it looks like the bulkhead is swelling and that the ship is going to explode and to make it even worse, there's a squall coming and it looks certain that the whole ship is gonna break apart and flounder. So they all leave without any of the natives knowing that they're in danger. And Jim has been dismissive of, these, of this terrible group of officers and he, he's just, how did he fall into this being on this crew and he, he's gonna stay on board and at the last minute, when one of their number dies of a heart attack before he can get in the boat, and they're all waiting for this one guy to come down, Jim is overwhelmed and he jumps ship. How to understand Jim's action? How do you understand the heroic actions of Lou Chambon or the cowardice, although he would say he was not a coward, he, wasn't a, he didn't fear dying, he feared a situation that he couldn't fix. Anyway, he leaves and abandons the ship. The judgment that is made, how to understand what he's done. He spends the rest of the novel trying to understand what he did. And, and uh, Conrad as well. So let's see if we can maybe get to an answer uh, as to what it was that allowed the people, the good people of Le Chambon to see the Jews, the children, as children in need. Or... Um, Jim uh, to somehow value something more than the 800 uh, pilgrims on his, for whom he was responsible. Um, so the analogies. These analogies are ancient. Uh, both Plato and Aristotle appeal to the arts to understand phronesis. And um, Plutarch, the great moralist of the, of the uh, great Roman moralist, but who's a, from Corinth, he's a Greek, but a Roman citizen, Plutarch uses it often. And uh, if with the renewal of moral theology, you have both Alistair McIntyre and uh, Servet Pinkers using analogies from the arts to understand three elements, maybe even more, the 
the notion of habitus, what's going on with the habitus, that's parallel. The what virtue empowers us to do that uh, Schneewin, in his account of virtue, doesn't uh, see sufficiently, uh, and the character of the action that is being done. So let's look at each element. Uh, I, I had these two. The third one is sport, which I will also be appealing to. Learning a language. Uh, if you just look through the stages, or uh, learning a musical instrument, what first takes place? Who here has learned a musical instrument? Wow, we got a, this is a great. So, uh, any pianists? All right, so you as a pianist, what did you start doing? What was the very first thing you had to do? But you didn't do it just once. So what did you spend your time doing when you started piano lessons? Scales. You start scales, and you start repeating them. And then you start learning little simple pieces that are basically based on modified scales. And uh, so scales function as kind of like the rules of Western music. You're the instrument, you're learning how to reproduce the sounds of your instrument, but you're learning how to do it in a way that is teaching you something about the relationship of sound of your instrument. Uh, so the, the primary function in the beginning is learning to obey the rules. Now, why? Why do any of this? What's also in the background? Why did you take up piano? My parents wanted me to. <laughs> well, so there's an authoritative fiat. Yes. Well, I mean, that's, that's often the case. So there's an authoritative voice that says, you are going to learn the piano. But um, why did their parents put you in this? What, I mean, what did they do concretely that make this happen? Was there a piano in the house? Yep, got a piano. Uh, got a piano. Lessons, okay, piano, piano lessons. Now, what are piano lessons? I mean, I'm just going to the basics here that we presuppose. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I don't remember doing scales in the beginning, so... Um, hmm. But something... Little pieces. Little yeah. pieces, yeah. But now, who, was there someone in charge? Yes, yeah. Why? And who was this person in charge? Under our hands. Wow. Shape. Yeah. So positioning had to be correct. And later on, you had to reposition to be able to progress... Yes. Now, um, who was this person who was telling you to do these things? A very nice lady called Miss Ellen. <laughs> why, did, why did you obey her? She knew what she was doing and could play beautifully. Ah. So. so notice already the structure of this activity, a very complicated activity. You start out with the building blocks, but you start out putting yourself in the hands of a master of the practice, and who can play beautifully. I mean, they're, they're not going to get the job if, if they come up and say, oh, I'll teach your child how to play, and they're just going, dun, 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 dun. no, they've got to know how to play the piano. All right, so someone who's an expert is presupposed, who in some ways in, in embodies the ideal that you're striving to attain, the ability to play Chopin and to play Chopin with coloration, creativity, in a lived way. 
artistically. All right, that authoritative voice is there at the beginning. You start with the building blocks and you start learning how to obey those blue, but you can't reduce piano playing to obeying the rules. Now, this is key. It's not like Schneewin's account that, yeah, children need rules, but when you're a man of virtue, you don't need the rules. That's like saying Chopin, in order to play his music, didn't need the rules, or Bach. That's lunacy. And you, the real test of this is if you've been able to have the privilege to spend any time with real jazz musicians. I mean real jazz musicians. The rules, without the rules, there is no jazz. Without jazz standards, I mean, think about what they're doing. A quartet or an octet creating music together, they have to internalize the rules. Now, it's clear, even like great singers, crooners like um, Frank Sinatra, they can slip just behind or just in front of the beat. But they know what they're doing. They are respecting the rules. You have to respect the rules in order to come in just a little early or a little late in a way that sounds good. Someone who can't play well is going to be sliding all over the place. It's not going to sound good. The great person is able to have so deeply internalized the rules that they apply it in the critical present moment, what the Greeks call the kairos. They find the kalos, the morally beautiful or the artistically beautiful good in the critical present moment. That's what jazz musicians are, are able to do. So the great Dave Brubeck said, uh, when he was asked why jazz was so popular, he said, jazz has something that all people need in order to succeed. Freedom from within tremendous discipline. So it's not that the expert no longer obeys the rules. It's that the expert has internalized the rules. And real life embodies the rules that don't break the rules, but go beyond the rules. It's the difference between, I remember I did a wedding of a, a former Marine officer, and he had never danced before, but he had to dance for his wedding, and he had to dance with his mother-in-law. So he decided that he was going to have a, it was going to be a waltz, and uh, he chose, of all waltzes, he chose Viennese waltzes, at which are not easy. And of course, he considered, okay, a waltz is a three-beat rhythm, and he just went plunk, plunk, plunk. Because if you look at the little outlines, you know, in these little dance books, that's what a waltz is, plunk, plunk. But if you watch someone who actually knows how to dance, it's not that at all. So it's, you cannot reduce dancing or music to just obeying the rules. Uh, you know, they've tried to have computers reproduce jazz. They can't. It's impossible. It sounds terrible. Even though the, 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 the tonal quality can be there, it's not music because it's not the human coloration of music. So what Schneewin fails to see is twofold. That morality is not just obeying the rules and that virtue ethicists don't think that they don't need rules but they have learned how to instantiate the rules in action and you cannot you cannot obey the 10 commandments in abstraction 
You have to know how to do it here and now in the hick et nunc. The closest techne analogy, besides music, improvisation, or, or Baroque instrument uh, ornamentation, which is how improvisation was uh, called uh, by people like Bach, the closest analogy besides ornamentation or, or improvisation in music is dance, uh, the way in which you have to put your foot down in the right place at the right time with someone else, or the double play in sports. You know, every double play is unique. I never get to use this analogy in Europe. Um, <laughs> but if you look at the double play, there's not only the rules, but there are also the unwritten rules. So, for example, any baseball fans here? Does the, uh, does the shortstop actually have to, or the second baseman, actually have to tag the bag to be uh, accorded the out? I'm seeing a... Okay, now why is that no? What is the unwritten rule? Right, so they don't want to encourage that the base runner with spikes in the air will destroy the knees and therefore end the career of the second baseman. So the rule, unwritten rule is, he has to be close enough that if he wanted to, he could have tagged the base. And what that does is it discourages the, set, the runner from trying to take out, even though they still do, uh, the, the, the player. Uh, now that's an unwritten rule, but it's a real rule, customary law. But every double play is unique, and it's, it's a community activity. Or if you watch the NBA finals, every way of doing the layup is unique, but it's responding in the kairos with the kalos. And you, it takes a lifetime of practice, of learning, of repetition. So getting back to our, our music analogy, as the person progresses in learning the music, that, that process of learning is put into the normal context of the practice. So in language, for example, language acquisition, you start memorizing the words, you start uh, having a few sentences, but very soon the teacher will put the language in a, a little uh, scenario. You go to a cafe to order coffee, or you have little conversations of greeting, where you try to put the activity in a mini context. So you, the students of piano will have a little concert of people their same level, people come to it, until you progress enough to be able to acquire. And what is it that you acquire? This is where Father Pinker's his distinction between freedom for excellence and freedom of indifference is so important. You've acquired a new freedom, a creative freedom, uh, to play Chopin with a coloration that no one has ever played before. And it makes you a star around, uh, around Europe, invited to play concerts everywhere. There's a new freedom that you didn't have before. So virtue for excellence that presupposes the rules but applies them in the context. The entire life of the village of Le Chambon uh, on the pre-war years has been studied with a certain amount of care. And there are a lot of cultural reasons why they were disposed to see the wayward, vulnerable person as a child. Not all the other things that could have gotten in the way. A child that needed their help. The virtues, when they are being acquired properly, give, dispose us to see the world as it is, to see the truth and to live the truth. So that's uh, my response to the good Professor Schneewin. Uh, but 
more Schneewin is important because he's articulating a very, very, very uh, influential view, and a view that many so-called virtue ethicists hold. And it's about their character, and there are no rules. And no, for Aquinas, it's embodying those natural rules, the first principles of practical reason, uh, the precepts of the natural law. You need to be disposed to live according to those precepts. And it's in and through your initiation into the practices of a community that you discover how to apply them. Uh, the later Wittgenstein is very interesting in terms of his idea of how you learn language and the arguments against private language. Uh, the, um, the, other, the studies in terms of uh, people uh, like Helen Keller who, learned, who came to language acquisition late uh, many are fascinated by her account, but one of the things they often neglect is that what's the very first thing that she does after she learns a few words? She's able to do that she never was able to do before. She reflected on her behavior. She felt regret for destroying a doll. She could now see her life in a larger context. Being initiated into the practices of language, being initiated into the practices of the community, which she had already been initiated with, but without language, she now can reflect on her behavior. She can make those judgments. Uh, we come, therefore, to see the truth of uh, the moral law in the context of a certain notion of human flourishing that we have been initiated into. It was part and parcel of the life of the people of Le Chambon to see children for who they were, children in need, and not through uh, one or other ideological eye. Now, it's granted, one of the things that helped them, because they were Huguenots and had suffered generations of persecution, they were disposed to see things that other communities were not disposed to. That raises very, very large questions about our own challenges to, in the Catholic community in America, how we want to live to dispose people to see things as they are and to act according to them. Uh, but that's the great challenge. The dispositions of the virtues in Aquinas' view, they dispose us in phronesis, in prudentia, to uh, see the moral good before us, the, the act that is ad finem, the act that participates in our human flourishing and ultimately participates in our way of participating in the life of God. Uh, what actions are in harmony with that and what actions are not? Uh, Jim's abandoning of uh, the ship uh, when he thought it was going to sink. Of course, the, the, the story turns out the ship did not sink and they're all brought before uh, uh, maritime courts for abandoning the ship. And so then he has to spend the rest of his life wondering uh, how he did what he did now that he's publicly been shamed for abandoning 800 people to their fate. So how must I live now to dispel, develop the traits of character that dispose me to see the moral good right now and to love that good so much that I choose it? And uh, we'll have a talk on prudence and the moral virtues, looking at the relationship to, to those virtues uh, and how we uh, arrive at, that, uh, at those dispositions. Um, now, I want to turn once more, ending with this, the fifth section here, um, to something that the pastor in Le Chambon says. And this is, uh, all, once again, on page two. 
began reacting to things that Philip Haley was saying, uh, the pastor says, it was there uh, in daily life, not elsewhere, that we received from God solutions to complex problems, problems we had to solve in order to shelter and hide the Jews. Now, let's go back to question 55 of the Prima Secunda, because I've looked so far at the content of Articles 1, 2, and 3, but Article 4, well, we can look at all the said contras of these articles. Article 1, the said contra, the authority of the said contra is the philosopher, Aristotle, who says science and virtue are habits. Then Article 2 quotes Aristotle again, virtue of a thing is that which makes its work good. Then Article 3, he uh, quotes Augustine and the philosopher. Augustine says, no one can doubt that virtue makes the soul exceedingly good. And then the philosopher from Book Two of the Ethics, virtue is that which makes its possessor good and its work good likewise. So all three uh, said contras of the first three articles cite Aristotle. Then we get to Article 4, where he's looking for the definition of virtue. And that article starts, it would seem that the definition usually given of virtue is not suitable to wit. Virtue is a good quality of the mind by which we live righteously, of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us without us. Now, Aquinas is going to go on. First of all, the thing that's often not noted enough, there was no obligation for Aquinas to choose this as his definition of virtue. He could have chosen any number. He could have come up with his own. But he chose a definition drawn from several places in Augustine for his definition. Now, he tweaks it, but he goes on. He thinks, he says, this definition comprises perfectly the whole essential notion of virtue. Now, Aquinas doesn't, you know, when Aquinas says something like this, he means it. All right. Now, he makes one little change. He would prefer habitus to qualitas because it's more specific. What type of quality? Well, it's a habitus. So if we get to the end, my reworking according to what he says in that article, we see that Aquinas' general definition of virtue is Virtue is a good operative habit of the soul infused in us by God. That should trouble the philosopher. And if that's his definition, which makes perfect sense because he goes on later to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit associated with it. And now he does acknowledge that if you drop off the last part, uh, as he says in the phrase there, if we omit this phrase, the remainder of the definition will apply to all virtues in general, whether acquired or infused. Uh, but to end, I want to end with what could be called a theological postscript. For Aquinas, virtues, and the reason he's interested in acquired virtue is because of the analogies they offer for infused virtue, not just faith, hope, and charity, but 
the theological virtues. Now, the theolo- I mean, uh, the cardinal virtues, the infused cardinal virtues. The infused cardinal virtues are not de fide. Uh, they're not in the catechism. Uh, but Aquinas thinks they're in the scriptures. Uh, and I've given you quotations that show uh, that the New Testament uses very rarely the technical word, technical Greek word for virtue, and always in a very surprising context. But three of the four cardinal virtues are used, phronesis, dikaiosune, often, uh, sophrosune, uh, they are all used. Something replaces Andrea, for I think a very simple reason. Andrea uh, has its roots, it gives the impression that that the source of that virtue is in the human being, because Andrea comes from, basically, Andrea means manly. Uh, Andros, um, uh, aner andros, is the word for a man, male, in Greek. So it, the Greek word is manly, and they, they replace that with other power words. So those virtues are there, but if you look at how the New Testament uses those virtues, they are things that God give us, things that are found perfectly in Christ, things for which we should pray. So the life of virtue essentially for Aquinas is the life of grace. We grow in the life of grace by analogy with acquired virtue. Uh, but just as the pastor of Le Chambon said, we had insights that were beyond our normal ability that allowed us to save the Jews. Um, I think the, the experience of the Christian life is many judgments, especially the most important judgments, the judgments that set our life on a new course, are uh, judgments that, are, that go beyond our natural abilities. Uh, and our, the, our loves as well, our elevated loves, to, have a, to thirst for the Eucharist, to thirst for the life of grace, to thirst for intimacy uh, with the triune God that shape our judgments, that allow us on a higher level uh, to uh, do the kalos, the morally beautiful deed, in the kairos. Um, And it's a new form of freedom to do things that people in other times and other eras, even just in daily life, have never done before. The the apostles had many gifts, but they never had to uh, navigate uh, traffic in rush hour Boston. So you know, you can engage in your infused virtues just navigating that. So all the different ways, the new freedom to, to see the good and do the good in the life of grace through these infused excellences that the tradition, already going back to the Old Testament books written in Greek, already going back to the Old Testament translations into Greek and in the New Testament, incorporate the pagan vocabulary but give it a new meaning. Aquinas is aware of this and it leads to, points to, uh, the difference between Aquinas and Aristotle. And I'll end on this. I'm like, I think I've got a minute left. Uh, for Aristotle, and I've given you the quotation, um, education from the very beginning uh, doesn't make some small difference. It makes all the difference. For Aristotle, it's impossible to rebound from a bad education. Uh, someone like Augustine would not have been a candidate for moral excellence in Aristotle's vision. Uh, his life was too disordered. Uh, but the Christian experience uh, proclaimed in the New Testament is that God's grace gives you the ability uh, to overcome an initial vicious formation. Uh, and so, therefore, grace makes possible uh, what uh, we couldn't do with regard uh, in terms of our own uh, 
family of background, family of origin, our own moral formations, grace suddenly allows us to do things we couldn't do otherwise, so that uh, in Christ I can do all things in the one who strengthens me. Um, so that's one big difference. It gets over uh, Aristotelian elitism. It allows one to overcome uh, a bad formation. Uh, but it also points to what others have called the aporia of ethics on the natural level and to the anguish of philosophy. Aquinas thinks that uh, the ancients, especially Aristotle, were able to see beyond what they could attain. He's able in book one and even in ten of the ethics to see, to trace uh, what happiness uh, should look like and also see that it's unattainable by humans as humans. It would be the life of a god. Uh, so Aquinas will say we can see to what extent the anguish uh, these people felt, these great uh, thinkers felt because of the limit of their perspective. And he says uh, grace overcomes that. And he quotes that wonderful quotation, which I'm sure I think she, she got this from reading Aquinas, but I can't prove this, uh, that uh, they're, they're the violent bear it away, that description of the way in which heaven is taken by storm because of the gift of grace. Uh, so grace overcomes the aporia of natural ethics and the anguish uh, of philosophy. Thank you very much.